Well, good morning. My name is Matt Howell. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to especially welcome you to Redeemer. Thanks for joining us, regardless if you're coming from a place of doubt or a place of belief, if you're joining us from a place of joy or a place of sorrow. We're just thankful to have you hanging out with us here at Redeemer this morning. Well, what is Redeemer? If you're new to Redeemer, you might be wondering, what is this thing? Well, we're a church, and what that means is we're a community of people that are trying to learn how to love God and how to love our neighbor. And the way that we go about doing that is we gather together each week on Sundays to worship God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so that we might rest in His great love for us. And then we get together throughout the week in small groups and individually over coffee or tea or water so that we might remind one another of His great love for us. And as we rest in His love and remind one another of His love, we delight to spread throughout Midtown in service so that we might reflect His great love because we, we dream of seeing our city flourish. And so that's who we are. We're a community of people. We're trying to learn how to love God. We're trying to learn how to love our neighbor as we rest and as we remind and as we reflect. And one of the ways that we've been, uh, that, that we've been, that's been helping us do that this summer is we've been looking at the parables that Jesus told. And here's how I want to set up this parable from Luke chapter 16 this morning. Uh, as many of you know, my wife and I used to be in campus ministry with a ministry called RUF, and I got this idea from a friend of mine named Les Newsom, who some of you might know. But at the beginning of every year, at our first freshman Bible study of the year, we gather a bunch of people together, all these freshmen together, and I would always ask them this question. If you could have any wish of, of God would grant you this wish so that you would be convinced that Christianity was actually true, what would you ask for? In, in other words, if you could ask for anything where God could just delete all of your doubts, all of your suspicion, all of your questions, so that you were absolutely convinced the Bible's true and God exists and Christianity is real, what would you ask for? And here's some of the answers that I got over the years. Um, one person said, I would be personally convinced if I could hear God speak to me. If I could just hear his voice speak to me, then I would, then I would buy in, all in. Another person said, I would be convinced if I was visited by an angel or if I you know, could witness a miracle. Somebody said, I would really be convinced if I could go back in time and witness the resurrection happen. Then I, I would be completely like, Got it. So here's the question. Uh, if that's what you need to believe beyond a shadow of a doubt, that God is real, that all this is true, then why doesn't God give it to you? Why doesn't God just give you the thing that you need to convince you? Why, why does God seem to be hiding? Why, why does God um, not do something to convince us that he's real? Now, that's a big question. And to that question... Jesus gives us this parable. His answer to that question is found in this parable. And so let me just kind of walk through the basic plot line of this story that was just read in Luke chapter 16. You have a rich man and you have a poor man named Lazarus. And they both die and the rich man goes to hell and the poor man, Lazarus, goes to heaven. Now we kind of need to pause right there before we even go any further because I know just the mention of the idea of hell can be triggering for some people. Because hell, the doctrine of hell in the Bible is, is confusing, it's, it's hard, it's painful. This is a concept that has been weaponized by many religious circles. 
the, the reality is, is that um, hell is not actually the focus of this passage. And so I'm not going to spend any time really diving into that subject. I kind of want to keep the main thing the main thing. But if that's a question for you that's concerning, that's you know, bothersome to you, which is totally legit if that's, if that's an issue for you, I'd love to invite you to email me. I'd love to sit down with you over coffee. We can do a deeper dive into that. I can send you some stuff that might be helpful. But feel free to email me, and we can talk about that kind of offline, as it were. But to go back to the actual story... Rich man goes to hell, poor man goes to heaven, and he's with Abraham. And the rich man, because he's kind of trapped and he's miserable, he looks up and he sees Lazarus and he sees Abraham together, and so he, he asks for some help. And you see that in verse 27. He says, uh, I beg you, Father, send him, talking about Lazarus, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Now, the rich man is saying, okay, there's nothing we can do about my situation here. I get it. But I've got five brothers that are still alive. If Lazarus were to rise from the dead and go visit my five brothers, they would be convinced that all this stuff is true, and they would, they would repent, they would believe, and they would be saved. That would be irrefutable evidence for them that they, that they would believe. So what is Abraham's response in this story? Well, verse 29, Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. Now, Moses and the prophets is a shorthand way of referring to the Old Testament as a whole. Abraham is basically saying they don't, they don't need a miracle to convince them that Christianity is true. They've got the Bible. <laughs> now, put yourself in the rich man's shoes here. Uh, what do you think would be more convincing? Kind of an awesome special effect miracle of somebody rising from the dead or an old book that's really hard to understand. No, it's a no-brainer. Every one of us would choose the miracle, somebody rising from the dead. And in fact, that's what he chooses as well. Look, look at what he says next. He goes in verse 30, no, meaning the Bible's not enough. We need something else. L look at it again, verse 30. He says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham insists in verse 31, he says, if, he says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, I know that's a pretty intense story. And uh, the story, it really confronts the way that we think about faith. It's, it confronts the way we think about evidence and truth. But Jesus is really, is really talking about the Bible here. And, and I think he's making at least three points about the Bible itself. And so I just want to show you three ideas that I think Jesus is showing us. He's showing us that the Bible is enough, the Bible is necessary, and the Bible is powerful. So let's just look at these three ideas one at a time. We'll try to move quickly through them. The Bible is enough, the Bible is necessary, and the Bible is powerful. So first, the Bible is enough. That's the basic point that Jesus is making in verse 29 and verse 31. The Bible is enough to convince you that all this Christianity stuff is true. Look at 31 again. He says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. In other words, if, if someone's not convinced by the Bible alone, then somebody rising from the dead is not going to convince them. 
His point is, the Bible is all you need to persuade you of the truth of the existence of God and the uh, truthfulness of Christianity. Now, I realize (laughs) that might be pretty jarring for some of you to hear. This is fairly controversial. I mean, this is a radical statement. He is saying you do not need, uh, you don't need to hear a voice from God. You do not need to hear, you, you don't need to hear from another holy book. You need no other evidence or outside sources or extra confirmation to validate the veracity and the truthfulness of Christianity. All you need is the Bible. Now, I know some of you might be saying, okay, this is just classic fundamentalism. This is just this um, anti-rational, outdated religious nonsense that, that is opposed to science, that's opposed to reason, it's opposed to evidence. Just believe the Bible because the Bible tells you to believe the Bible. That's circular reasoning. Okay, that's fair enough. I understand why this might, you know, be a turnoff for you, this may be the reason why you just kind of are not into church or into Christianity. Okay, but I, I want you to give Jesus a benefit of the doubt here, because Jesus does go a step deeper here. Not only does he say that the Bible is enough, this is all you need, he also says the Bible is necessary, and he starts to unpack why you need it. Why do we need the Bible? So let's look at the second idea. Jesus does go deeper. Why is the Bible necessary? Well, I want you to notice a little detail here. There's a little detail. When Jesus talks about Moses and the prophets in verse 29 and in verse 31, he talks about our need to hear them, to hear them. You see that? Look at verse 29. He says, let them hear them. And then verse 31, he says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, which is kind of fascinating because this is a book he's talking about. How how can a book speak. It's an interesting word choice. What's going on here? Well, I want you to hold on to that question, and we're going to take a little bit of a, what may feel like a detour, and we're going to circle back to that question in a few minutes, I promise. So just hang with me here for a second. Jesus seems to assume that miracles, that special effects aren't enough to convince you of something. And here's why, because he assumes that you and I have an interpretive grid. You and I have an interpretive grid. Here's what I mean by that. Every one of us has a set of biases that we come to the table with. Nobody is completely objective because of our story, because of our background, because of our race, because of our are tons of different factors, our context, our upbringing. We come into this world with a particular set of lenses by which we interpret all of the data and our experiences through. For example, let's just say that someone that you know is, uh, is uh, sick in the hospital and uh, a group of Christians get together and they pray for this person's healing. And let's just say that uh, the next day this person gets better. They, they, they totally recover. Now, if you're a Christian, you are going to interpret that fact as, oh, God, God heard our prayers and he answered our prayers. He intervened. But if you're not a Christian, you might interpret that fact and say, well, okay, we don't really know what happened, but there has to be a scientific or a natural explanation for, to explain what just happened there. So my point is you have one event, you have one fact Two different people interpret and explain that fact 
totally differently based off of their built-in assumptions, their prior commitments. Think of it as like you're going through life with, with uh, colored glasses on. Everything that you see, everything that you experience, everything you take in is being filtered through these colored glasses. You're screening some things out, some things are getting in, and it's all based off of your prior commitments. But here's the thing. Your interpretive grid is colored by what you most deeply love. Your interpretive grid, your glasses, how you interpret reality is colored by what you most deeply love. Let me give you an example. Think of it like this. I know that donuts are bad for me. Like, I have the facts. I have the data. Any rational person could make an airtight argument for why you should avoid donuts. And I would believe them. I would agree with them. But do I care? (laughs) No, I don't care because data doesn't outweigh my love for donuts. My love for this thing screens out the data. I know it's bad for me. I just don't care. I eat it anyway. Here's my point. The reason why somebody doesn't believe in God isn't because there's a lack of evidence. In fact, the Bible itself says in Romans chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, it says that the whole world is full of evidence that's screaming towards the existence of God. The, the problem is not necessarily evidence. The problem is how we interpret the evidence. The reason why somebody doesn't fundamentally believe God is maybe a reason because fundamentally they love something else other than God. And that's influencing how you even experience and interpret the data. L- let me give you an example of this. Aldous Huxley, author of Brave New World, uh, he grew up in a Christian household. When he went off to college, he essentially rejected the faith that he grew up with, and he embraced a worldview that he refers to as meaninglessness. It was essentially a worldview of atheism where he believed there is no point to all of this, there there is no meaning. And in one of his books um, called Ends and Means, he, there, there's actually a section where he's extremely honest about why he rejected Christianity and chose to embrace a different worldview. And, and here's what he says. I'll quote, and I'll read it. Quote, he said, I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning, and consequently I assumed that it had none. For myself, as no doubt for most of my friends, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. Now, here's the sentence that is really important. He says, we objected to the morality of Christianity because it interfered with our sexual freedom. Now, here's what he just said. He said, I I chose to reject Christianity and embrace atheism, not because the evidence pointed me in that direction, but because I wanted to sleep around. I wanted sexual freedom. That's what I loved. That's what I prized. And I couldn't have that and also believe in a God that had a voice and had some uh, opinions about my sexuality. And so I rejected the idea of God so that I could have what I love. Now, that's pretty fascinating, but, but here's the point. He's demonstrating that you and I are controlled by what we love. 
We interpret reality based off of what we most deeply love. We think we're coming to conclusions based off of arguments and facts and data, and, it ha and that may be true, that's part of it, but it ha actually has way more to do with what we love and what we prize than it does with just arguments and reason. And here is why the Bible is necessary. Because logic and miracles don't have the power to get to what we most deeply love. Think of it like this. When I was a sophomore in college at the University of Oklahoma, Boomer Sooner, they brought in this hypnotist for one of their like student uh, programming events, and I went. It was crazy that the 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 hypnotist stood up on stage and he brought people from the crowd, and they came up on stage and he put them in a trance and had them do all this crazy, humiliating stuff. And we were sitting out in the crowd and we were stunned and we were it was hilarious. And and, and when the night was over, we walked away and we were like, "Whoa, that was crazy! That was amazing! Was that even real?" Oh my goodness. And we were blown away by kind of the special effects of it. And then, like two minutes later, we were like, so y'all want to go play some video games? We like, totally didn't care about it two minutes later. In the same way, let's just say that, uh, it, I mean, you would have the same exact reaction if at church I stood up and I said, hey, I can prove to you that God is real. I can heal somebody right on the spot. And let's say I pull somebody up from the crowd and they're, they're injured and I put my hands on them and I heal them and you, everybody would be blown away. They'd be like, oh my goodness, that was crazy. Did you experience that at church? Was that real? Was that, was that a hoax? That new pastor at Redeemer is really changing things up and, and you, would, you would talk about it on your drive home and then two minutes later you'd be like, okay, where y'all want to go to lunch? Here's my point. A miracle, a display of, of, of power like that, isn't powerful enough to get into the thing that you actually love. It's awesome, it's exciting, it's a flash in the pan, but it doesn't go deep enough. That's why we need a word from outside of our perspective to cut through and actually challenge our most deeply held assumptions. We need a word from the outside to challenge our glasses, as it were. Think of it like this. Again, because I've worked with college students for the past number of years or so, I've, I've had this experience several times where I'd sit down with a student and, and they would get like a 94 on their exam. That's the data. That's the fact. I got a 94 on my exam. And their interpretation of that fact was, I'm such a failure. I'm an idiot. I can't believe I blew it. Now, why are they interpreting that data like that? It's because they have this deep love for perfection. They, they have a prior commitment to having to see themselves as doing everything perfect. And what that person needs in that moment is someone from the outside who can cut through their assumptions and be like, whoa, your interpretation is crazy off. You got a 94. That's awesome. You're not a failure, but they need a voice from the outside to be able to cut through and challenge their assumptions. And this is why the Bible is necessary, because it is God speaking. We, we've come full circle. I told you we're going to take a little bit of a detour, and here we are. This is why Jesus talks about the Bible in terms of its speaking, that we have to hear it. 
The Bible itself is God speaking from the outside and challenging our interpretive grid because it's broken. There's another place in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 4. Here's how it describes the Bible. It says, for the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The Bible is saying about itself that the Bible has the power to cut you to the core and expose the deepest parts of who you are. Miracles, special effects, logic, all of that is really important. It doesn't have the power to get to the most deepest parts of what you love. So that's why we have to see thirdly, lastly, that the Bible is powerful. How does it do that? How does the Bible have the power to, to do that? The Bible is enough the Bible is necessary. The Bible is powerful. How does the Bible convince us and transform us? Well, okay, think about this. Last thought. What is the Bible basically? Basically, what the Bible is, is it's a story. I mean, sure, there's a lot of stuff in there. There's laws. There's genealogies with hard-to-pronounce names, there's poetry, there's prophecy, but what the Bible is at its core, fundamentally, is that it is a story. Stories have the power to change us. I know because I've been doing this for a while, when I stand up and I, and I talk in front of people, I know when I'm going too long and I'm talking about boring things, people's eyes glaze over They start to fade out. You can tell they're picking up their phones, they're texting. But as soon as I launch into a story, as soon as I tell, you know, I set it up and say, hey, so here's what happened to me last week. I was walking down the street. Everybody's up from their phones and they're locked back in. It's just, it's like magic. And here's why. Because stories have the capacity to transfix you and to transform you. This is why you and I end up talking way more about the shows that we're into and the books that we're reading, way more than we've talking about the 4th of July fireworks show. The 4th of July fireworks show has a lot more noise and eye candy, and it's, it's a lot louder and bigger, and yet stories are the thing that actually have the, the deeper power to change us, to transform us. So, how does the story of the Bible change us? Well, here's how the story of the Bible goes. It begins by telling you that God created a beautiful world filled with people of intrinsic value that were designed to connect with God and to connect with each other. That's how the Bible begins. And we deeply resonate with that. Because we intuitively know that human lives should be valued and protected. We intuitively know that material stuff like sunsets over the river and coffee and strawberries, all of these things are amazing. We intuitively have this sense to want to connect with the divine. This is why human beings from, from as, as, you know, across the world, as long as there have been human beings on the planet, we've been religious. We've wanted to have some sort of spiritual connection. And the story of the Bible goes on. 
the story of the Bible goes on to tell us that humanity rebelled against this God and everything about this good creation got damaged and twisted as a result. And, and we, we deeply resonate with that. We just intuitively know when you look out at the world and the state that it's in right now, we just intuitively know this is not the way it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be better than this. We know it's a mess deeply. And then the story of the Bible goes on and it says, rather than just vaporizing us out of the dust for our rebellion, God himself comes in the person of Jesus to rescue us and to rescue our world. Jesus comes and he bears the weight of our rebellion on the cross and he dies for his enemies out of sacrificial love for them. And we deeply resonate with that. That's why as a culture, we are constantly producing movies and stories where there's a hero that sacrificially dies for the ones that he loves. We, we deeply, we, this is just a part of our culture. We love stories where the hero dies for her friends. And then the story of the Bible goes on and it says, one day God will come again and he will restore every square inch of creation. One day there will be no more COVID. There'll be no more masks. There'll be no more racial injustice, no more need to protest, no more poverty, no more death, no more suffering, no more addiction, no more anxiety. And we deeply resonate with that. We, and this is why we just intuitively long for justice. This is why we long for the world to be made right and healed and restored. That's the story of the Bible. It, it, it is, the Bible is not a set of instructions on how you and I get to God. It's a story about how God has come to get to us. The Bible is not a story where God airlifts our souls to, to float in the clouds away from this world for eternity. It's a story about how God is coming to redeem and heal and renovate the very world that we're standing on right now. And when that story becomes personal to you, that changes everything. That changes what you most deeply love. It changes the way that you see the world. That changes the way that you interact and experience the world. So my invitation for you this morning is this, to listen to the story of the Bible until it grips your soul. Maybe listen to it for the first time. Maybe listen to it for the thousandth time, but listen to the story of the Bible. That's what Jesus is telling us in this parable. If you're somebody that uh, you consider yourself skeptical and, and you're looking for answers, listen to the story of the Bible. If you consider yourself a Christian and, and you're wrestling with doubts, you're wrestling with your faith, listen to the story of the Bible. If you consider yourself a committed believer of Jesus and you want to go deeper in your faith, what do you do? You listen to the story of the Bible. That's it. You have Moses and the prophets. Let us hear them. Listen to the story of the Bible. Consider that an invitation for you this morning. Let me pray. Father, would you give us eyes? Would you give us ears? Would you give us hearts that are receptive to your great story? 
I do pray that, that your word would penetrate our hearts, that it would pierce us and that it would transform us, that, that your, your story would get into our bones, into our bloodstream so that we might become the kind of people that change what we love, that we would be pulled from, from outside of ourselves. There's this, there's this gravitational pull towards only loving ourselves and our interests. And would you pull us outside of ourselves that we might love God and love our neighbor that we might be the people that you've called us and created us to be. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.